Welcome to Creative on Purpose Live, conversations about making a better living by making a bigger difference. I'm your host, Scott Perry, author of Onward, head coach at Akimba Workshops, and chief difference maker at Creative on Purpose. If you're ready to fly higher in the difference only you can make and start living your legacy, grab some insight and inspiration at creativeonpurpose.com. Let's meet today's guest. I'm so excited. Jessica Dixon, welcome to the broadcast. Please tell our viewers who you are, what you're up to these days, and where can they go to learn more about you and the difference you're making? Oh my gosh. First off, thank you so much for having me. Um, as Scott said, my name is Jessica Denise Dixon. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I hail um, from, well, right now I'm living on Kumeyaay land in what's modern day known as San Diego, California. I support people in embracing the fullness of their humanity through anti-racism work, through the Enneagram, and through embodiment. And those things all feel sometimes super different, but in reality, they are tools and ways that we embrace our full, whole selves. Um, where can you find me? You can find me on, on Instagram. Uh, my handle is my name, Jessica D. Dixon or Jessica D. Dixon Coaching, if you want my more polished professional um, side. And my website is jessicadixon.com. So, yeah. yeah, I think those are the basics. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. Well, uh, I came across you and your work through uh, Sounds True, which is one, a pu publishing house that I've been following and, and a fan of for years. I signed up for the Power of Conscious Marketing uh, workshop, which I highly endorse. And uh, Kylie and Richard um, have some of your work featured in the bonuses uh, yeah. around diversity, equity, and inclusion. At Akimba Workshops, where I serve as head coach, we have been working with Hella Social Impact around this uh, a similar type of work so i was very drawn um by your presentation it was about an hour and 50 minutes i thought it was some of the tightest um most uh actionable um insights into anti-racism work that i've that i've heard and i've and i've read and, and heard plenty um and always have much more to learn but i just i gleaned so much insight i was drawn to reach out complete stranger and say, Hey, I think you're wonderful. I would love to spend a half hour talking to you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. So I'd, I'd love if you don't mind to start with the anti-racism work. Um, and maybe even before we go there, you described your, your work as the helping people engage the fullness of their humanity. Yeah. Is that right? So, that sounds very aligned with what we do at Creative on Purpose. I'm really curious about your backstory, your origin. Like, how did Janine, I'm sorry, Jessica Denise Jack Dixon get to where she is right now doing this work? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love this question. And it actually reminds me of an experience that I had this summer. So I'm originally from Michigan. And I have been gone since 2008. But I went to college at the University of Michigan. And this summer when I was visiting my family for the first time since I moved to California, um, so it's been almost five years since I've been back, um, I visited my old college campus. And it was move-in weekend during this weekend in August. And I might tear up as I'm speaking to this because I'm just so overcome with emotion just thinking about it. I drove past my old door, my old residence hall where I became an RA. I was a resident advisor at Mary Markley Hall 
um, on the Hill at the University of Michigan from 2005 until I graduated in 2007. And my life is what it is today because of that experience. At the time when I was hired, I didn't even go through a full interview process. I had gone through the first step in the interview process and then they called me. I actually had a dream the night before they called me and my two RAs from my first year and my second year, the year that I was in, both congratulated me and wished me luck in this job. I was like, what a weird dream. The next day I get a call offering me the position saying, you know, we're going to offer you this at the one hall that I did not want to be an RA in. And which I'm like, okay, well, I had this dream and then this is happening. And like, oh my gosh, like this clearly is for me. And so that started this beautiful, beautiful trajectory for me of, of loving people and caring for people. You know, when I, as an RA, I plan programs around diversity and around, you know, social skills. And I brought in people who were kind of experts in those areas and did my own research and held space for, for people and supported my residents. I was, did crisis response. That set me up to then when I was in graduate school, I supervised RAs. And I was getting my master's degree in counseling. And I thought, after this, I'm done with higher ed. Turns out that I spent less than a year as a school counselor. I ended up being laid off. So after I got my master's degree, I was, I was a, a guidance counselor at a high school. And they didn't have enough funding. So several positions got cut and last in, first out. It made sense. Um, and so as I was soul searching, I was like, when were the times when I felt like I was living in purpose where the things that I did really mattered to me. Um, and I started to apply a back at positions in higher education, specifically in residence life. And I ended up working at Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach, Florida. And um, from there, I, I worked at in Ohio and then a job brought me to California and in 2019, I decided it was time to move on. So for me, the work was really beautiful, but I was tired of dealing kind of with the same 18-year-old issues that surface year after year. I was getting older, but the 18-year-old issues are the same because 18-year-olds come in at the same time every year as freshmen. And so I just realized that it was taking a toll on me. Hmm. And... A few people had told me, you should consider being a coach. And I was like, maybe, maybe we'll see. Um, but then when that happened, I actually ended up working um, for, a, for an Enneagram coach for a little bit before deciding it was really my time to launch a business. And so I really started full time March 2020. <laughs> Had a little bit of a journey in between leaving July 2019 um, to July or, or to, to March 2020, right as the pandemic was beginning. And so I started working full time and my, my business coach was like, hey, you have to tell people you have a business. I was like, is that why I'm not getting clients? <laughs> no one knows. Like, I kind of just like I like filed for a business license. Like, shouldn't people know? Like, what do you mean? I, I like I have to tell people. Um, and so it's been really a journey to actually like put myself out there and to 
allow myself to be seen and to be visible and to really call people in to what I believe is just a new paradigm in the world, a new way of looking at the world and a new way of really viewing ourselves. I always knew diversity work was part of my work because I don't believe that we can really heal as deeply if we're not doing that work. Um, but I had no idea it would be as prominent and prevalent because I had been doing it since I became an RA in 2005. Um, but when George Floyd was murdered, I was like, just really heard, you know, I don't, from God and said, do this program that combined the Enneagram with anti-racism. And I was hesitant. I was hesitant because I know that sometimes it takes a toll working with white people around these issues because there's so much, you know, intergenerational centuries worth of pushback, centuries worth of digging these patterns in. There was so much. And I was like, I don't know if I want to deal with white people in this way. But I did. And I launched a program. Nine women signed up. And it was a very, very beautiful nine month journey that we went on um, in Disrupt the Narrative. And I realized during that time that we can do Enneagram work, yes. We can intellectually do anti-racism work, but unless we restructure our nervous systems and people do the embodiment work, things are not going to change. And I've come to even see, you know, we're dealing with some of the same issues that Martin Luther King, you know, Jr., for example, dealt with because there has not been the, the intricate nervous system work that's necessary to change on a collective level. When we intellectualize, sure, that's fine. We can understand many things and an intellectual understanding is important, but the embodiment piece actually changes um, the structure of how we interact with each other and interact in the, with the world in general. So that's a little bit of my journey. That's incredible. There's a, just a couple interesting points of intersection in your story and mine. Um, I was an RA when I was in college for three years. Yes. Um, it was a profound, like, you know, as you were speaking, I was like, I had forgotten about what a profound difference that made in my life um, because it was the first time I'd ever really been in that kind of leadership role. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, had a, a brief uh, a brief career in academia. Um, <laughs> don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, <laughs> okay. okay. And, and like you, when everyone else was telling me to go into coaching, I was like, eh, no, about the coaching. I don't know about that. Um, so it's just so much of your story around that was was resonating. Um, I love what you were saying about the anti racism work being something that we has we have to embody and that we have to to to, to build it in. you know there's we've seen what happens when we try to legislate civil rights it you know there wasn't a lot changed from the moment the civil rights act was signed to the moment that we're in right now because you can't inf enforce this into people it has to come it has to emerge and so i'm really curious about this um, you've re referred to it as embodiment work. Is it, are we talking about um, what I've heard people talking about recently as somatics, or is is that part of it, or is is it something different? How how are you helping people yeah. rewire their nervous systems 
so that they can have this new way of being in the world? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. And so I define embodiment as kind of a broader, in a, in a broader way. And so um, our embodiment has to do with us actually having a relationship with our bodies. Because one of the things that white supremacy does is disembody us. Mm-hmm. And really, if we're going to heal, wounds of oppression are the wounds of the body. They are wounds of disembodiment. And so it's an important thing to just be related to our bodies. You know, I, I, I say all the time to my clients, you know, if you say that you're going to, to love the black body, the black male body, for example, how can you do that if you don't actually have a relationship with your own? If you don't do that work, then it just becomes this performative way of you showing up. And performativism, it hurts, it harms the people that it's trying to help. And so embodiment is developing that relationship with our bodies, but and it's a way of, of really being able to, just like you're talking about with somatics, tracking what's happening in the nervous system. When I'm doing any kind of anti-racism work, one of the ground rules that I set with groups is that you actually are responsible for managing your own reactivity. What some would call, because it's been a popular term, fragility. And, excuse me, Mm -hmm. what often happens is that people don't recognize the ways that they're triggered. And then they just go out and they take steps and they take action and they push back and they get really emotional. And there's all of this, like this whole world that's created when people are not in touch with their own reactivity. And so the work that I do in supporting people is knowing, is helping people separate out their reactivity from, well, let me say it this way. The white nervous system often in the nervous system has conflated that being uncomfortable is the same as being unsafe. And so when presenting these concepts that might create a little bit of discomfort or even a lot of discomfort, what actually happens is that the nervous system doesn't know that that the person is safe. And so when, when I'm starting to do work, I, I tell people, you, you have to manage your own reactivity. And if you notice that you're reactive, then I need you to tell me. That's actually something that we need to work through. You don't get to just push through it because that's not real. So you pushing through it is like challenging, you know, intellectually you can know something, but until you know it in your nervous system, you don't know it. Mm-hmm. You don't know it at all. And so just just knowing that you're overreacting doesn't do much until you can actually move that reactivity through your body. You can start to see, oh, I was actually really reactive just now because not because my humanity and my true physical, mental, emotional safety was challenged, but because my privilege and power was just challenged. And when we have people who are more able to be in their bodies in that way, we can start to actually see more change in the world because people are taking responsibility. Oh, I'm complicit because my nervous system is telling me that 
me upholding this, this positioning that I have is the only way to be safe. And so the body, the body is wise. And so we have to do the healing work of, of, of acknowledging entitlement and privilege so that you can actually reclaim the truth of who you are, as opposed to living in what white supremacy or patriarchy or capitalism tells you you are. The ways that it tells you that you are safe because you have upheld this, this aspect of, of who you know yourself to be. And so I, I all the time, you know, I, I, I primarily work with women and I'm working more with men lately who are, I'm like, are you ready to step in? Cause let's do it if you're ready. And the women that I work with are like, why is, why aren't, aren't men doing this? Mm-hmm. Why is it so hard to get men into this? And my response is there's so much that the white man's nervous system feels that there is to lose. The white man's nervous system and ego structure is both strong and fragile. And when I say that, I mean, it is strong in protecting power. And it is fragile that any little thing that could feel like a threat causes this protection, which often turns in defense, often turns into offense. And so if, if the, if the white male nervous system doesn't know that there's a, a deeper truth to who they are, rather than their positioning because of privilege, which isn't even something that you have, it's something that's put on you. Mm-hmm. It's like, you don't, it's, you don't even own it, but you feel like it's yours. Until that can change, white men are not gonna be really into it. And, and what is to gain is um, a deep veracity, a deep truth of who we are, knowing ourselves more, being able to be fully expressed being able to be emotional, you know, all the, all the things that are part of who we are. Um, we just get a deeper uh, experience of ourselves in the world. And therefore we create more space for others to be themselves. Yeah. Well, I, my, my assertion is that culturally we, we live in a world that rewards certainty and overconfidence about things in which we have no right to have any certainty or confidence. Like life is nothing but uncertainty. Um, what I'm hearing and, and we, I, I feel like we have cracked open the door, but we have not yet fully stepped through this idea that actually embracing uncertainty and, um, seeing the abundance uh, the, the true abundance of power, privilege, opportunity, possibility, um, and becoming like letting go of our certainties and overconfidence and embracing curiosity and consideration, yeah. and which means becoming a little bit more vulnerable, like taking yeah. understanding that maybe we don't have all the answers, maybe we don't actually know what we're going, like what what's going to happen. But um, it feels like we're beginning to, 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 to warm up to the idea that we can be both vulnerable and courageous, that we can be um, <clears throat> curious and successful. Uh, yeah. So there's, and, and I really am resonating with um, the idea of embodiment 
because one of the things that we talk a lot about in at Creative on Purpose is helping people become integrated human beings. You're like we live in this world where we're fed the lie of work-life balance. Like mm-hmm. there's a possibility that we can have containers equally full. Right. <laughs> that is that is how we achieve happiness. It's like actually that's impossible and never going to happen. What happens if you just become an integrated human being in and of yourself, and you show up wherever you show up in the work you know, in your day to day? Yeah. You know, and that for me, that was a defining moment in my pursuit of equanimity, which is what happens if I just show up as the best Scott Perry I can be all day mm-hmm. long in in pursuit of becoming a better Scott Perry by paying attention to what's going on now. And that embodiment piece, what I'm hearing is um, the, you know, the fragility comes from attachment to old stories that no longer service and unhealthy expectations about what we deserve. And what I'm hearing in the embodiment piece and what everything you're saying is what happens if we come into the here and now, if we come into our bodies and be present with what is happening in in this moment. And yeah, I just, yes, yes, yes. One of the things that I'm grateful, I I kind of jokingly call, um, Brene Brown, the Caucasian, like self-help goddess, like that's kind of like everyone worships at the throne of Brene Brown. And I love Brene Brown's work. And I think Brene Brown's work has been important in actually bringing vulnerability into a larger social context that gives us a frame from which to expand. And if we're doing the work of being vulnerable, but we're not doing anti-racism work, what it does is create space for some people, people who hold privilege and power to be vulnerable and other people to not be vulnerable because you have to deal with people not recognizing that their tears are actually from their whiteness being challenged rather than from the depth of their humanity that's grieving. So people do, if people don't know the difference between that, who gets hurt? Mm. Mm. And so, you know, there is a larger context of us being able to, you, as you said, integrate. And I love that, like being more fully human, we have that opportunity. And if we go into it without these other pieces, without examining our it literally embodied experience as we walk in the world, how people see me, how people perceive me, how that changes things, how it, you know, maybe my great grandfather had an experience that I actually am still processing because we inherit not just, you know, not just these beautiful genes in the skin, but the nervous systems of the people who have come before us. Yeah. I just started reading, well, not just started, I'm I'm more than halfway through, um, Howard Bloom's book, and now I'm forgetting the name of it, but he talked, it's one of the elements of, of that book is talking about, it's called the global brain, how we are inheriting the tolerances and temperaments of generations past. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's scientific studies done, you know, with animals um, that prove like you, you are inheriting the, to your point, the nervous system. And yeah, I well, what what I love about your work is it gives gives me hope um, that there is a better way forward, and that we are we are becoming more uh, open to the idea of um, you know we can, to the core of your your work that we can 
experience more of what it is to be fully human, to be fully happy. And we can work together on becoming a, more of both and recognizing that that's a renewable resource. The more opportunity we recognize um, and, and share, the more opportunity is naturally occurring. It becomes a renewable resource as opposed to the finite resource that we've always um, treated it as. So I, I'm not leaving nearly enough time for the, the other part of the conversation that I wanted to have with you. So we may have to have another conversation, but I love that you, you've woven in that you use the Enneagram as, as a tool, uh, Creative on Purpose, we use the values and action character strength survey um, as a tool to start to, you know, for me, it's about, I, I believe that we are doing our best work when we do our work from the inside out, making sure that the container is full and then we can share the overflow um, and that, you know, when we start with who, the who that we need to start with is ourselves. What are our core values? What are our guiding principles? What are core talents and skills? You know, what are the inherent qualities that we can bring to the table? So I'm just, just maybe quickly share a little bit because um, I'm curious about the Enneagram for reasons that I already disclosed to you. Um, <laughs> why that tool and 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 how does how does that you know starting with that help the clients that you're working with? Yeah, so the Enneagram, there's a lot of ways that people think about the Enneagram. It's spoken about like a personality typing system. And I really see it as um, giving us kind of a key to, to understanding our souls. And it's to me, it's deeply um, soul work. It's spiritual work. It's um, interpersonal work. It's emotional intelligence work. It's leadership work. It's all the things. And the Enneagram is this typing system that has ancient roots. And the basics of it is that it, it talks to us and it shows us our motivations, which may be conscious or may be unconscious. And it gives us um, what our core reactivity is. Mm. So what our core sensitivities are in the world. So, for example, I'll just give you an example for me. I identify as a core type eight. There are nine types in the system. And my core motivations are, I really want to avoid betrayal and emotional hurt, pain. And I really want to feel alive. And I really want to be able to create my own destiny and be in control of my destiny and leave an impact. And so when I either move close to the fear of being harmed or controlled or away from the desire, I feel like I'm moving further away from it, my type's reactivity comes up in the form of an emotional or energetic reactivity through the passion of the type, through the mental reactivity um, that's called the fixation, and then through a, a strong defense mechanism, which is the thing that keeps this ego structure in check. And we need an ego structure. So the point is not to like obliterate an ego structure. Like we all need an ego structure to live. It's how we have a personality. It's how we move through the world. And it's it's, it's not a bad thing. And sometimes the ego is like demonized. So it's like, no, it's just protecting us. So let's like honor it, shall we? Like, let's try to do that. Um, and so it, it gives us, when we're doing the work, when we're doing anti-racism work, for example, it actually gives us the things that we're most likely to bump up against. And so the Enneagram, is a, it's a deep system with so much information. And that's why people use it for years and years and years. I know people who have been doing work with the same group of people for 20 years. There's always more to uncover. Mm -hmm. And so 
the reactivity, it's, it's, it's good to understand like, oh, I'm moving away from the thing that I truly desire. And that's why it's not because there's something flawed within me or that I'm broken. It's that I'm protecting myself. And it's important for us to be, really be able to honor the ways that we've protected ourselves. I think that survival often um, is underplayed. Like we, like it's often downplayed or even talked bad about like, no, 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 no. We actually need to survive. <laughs> That's what we need to do. And so we can honor the ways that our type has supported us in surviving. As we, and I, you talked about the container, I talk about growing capacity a lot. We actually need to increase our capacity to be able to hold different things. And so doing this work allows us to increase our capacity to hold harder things without having the reactivity because we're working through the ways that we feel like we need to be protected. And it gives us the chance to create a witness for ourselves where I can see, oh, I, th I thought that that was a threat. That's why I was really reactive. And I, I see now that it's not. So how can I then actually comfort myself? How can I give myself the love that I needed when my nervous system was like, threat, 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 you're in danger, you are in danger. And so the Enneagram work is beautiful. And I hope that you are more open to taking a step into it. Well, I am sure that if my friends Natalia and Kelly are watching, they will um, be giving me a big, I told you so. Uh, and invite me once again. And, you know, for me, for me, and and I was mostly being facetious because at this point I have seen, I, there are many tools. I There's the, the one that I use and there's the Enneagram and there's Myers-Briggs and there's many others. Yeah. Um, the most important thing is to recognize that, you know, there are tools and there, there, there are ways of taking a temperature. They're not necessarily life sentences. I think that the, the thing that I'm hearing from you is, um, and one of the reasons why I love that you, you're, you're a coach that uses this tool is, uh, you know, I tell my clients, don't just jump on and take the survey by yourself because we're just naturally predisposition to program or like we we know what we want to be like and yeah. so we will answer the questions in a way that gives us the, the result that we want as opposed to the result that's true so like when i take it i always have my wife ask me the questions mm. and if i am if i am trying to engineer a, a result she'll say is that true is that really <laughs> yeah true um, and so it's just always helpful to, to do this in, in collaboration, in community. Um, well, yeah, and there are, there's actually a lot of Enneagram tests and I really don't recommend them. Um, I recommend more of, you know, you learning more about yourself. You can get a book and start reading through. I do typing sessions with people to kind of help them just see what I notice as someone who's been working with the system and has like a, a what I would consider a pretty good knowledge of the system to just point out certain things um, um, to them. And um, the thing that I love about the Enneagram and the reason that, I mean, I've done work with a lot of different systems and to, I, these tools are also helpful is that the Enneagram gives us a path to our work. So we have our type and then we have what I call, you know, resource points, which are other parts, other types that help us when we we actually naturally kind of take on certain characteristics when we're stressed or when we're healthy um, that help us actually integrate a little bit more. And so it's such a in-depth tool that actually doesn't say like, this is your sentence. 
You know, I think people actually over identifying with their type is a problem because then it creates you as this one dimensional thing. And if we actually see the, that our type is this way that we have um, to, that's kept us protected, that has kept us surviving, um, then we can honor that and we can say like, hey, am I, do I need my type to be as strong as it is in the same ways? What happens is that it becomes a pattern that we play out over and over and over. And then we get more and more and more and more and more sensitive to the things that our type is sensitive to. And we can then ask ourselves, okay, you know, as a type eight, do I always need to have my heart protected? Or do I actually need to be able to discern what what's a true threat versus, you know, uh, maybe something that's a slight that I would have years past, like, oh, you didn't call me at nine, you called me at 905, like you betrayed me. Like when I was very, you know, I had my ego was very fragile at one point. Um, when it was all that, like it was hard. <laughs> well, it, was hard. it was hard. It was really hard. Now I actually know that you calling me five minutes later is like, like not a big deal. But before me, I would have thought it was a betrayal. It would have felt like a massive threat. And so uh, the work is beautiful. The work is beautiful. And it's, it's really is a gift. I actually even tell people, Scott, like, if you're not going to do the Enneagram work, don't, you don't even need to know your type. You don't need to because it's, it's such deep things. And when you know, when people know, like, I don't, and I, and I tell people, you should, you shouldn't ask anyone their, their type either because it's about your core motivations, your core wounding. Like that's, that's deeply vulnerable. Someone is not interested in you digging into their life and has not given you consent to do that you probably shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love what you're saying. And I totally agree about, you know, it's not a sentence. It's, it's um, a path to becoming. Yeah. Um, and the bottom line is going back all the way back to the Oracle of Delphi, the charge to know thyself has been at a very important starting point for a human, the human journey. Yeah. Uh, of becoming. So I, I love that you're sharing that. Our time um, is coming to an end, but I have one final question, uh, Jessica. It's the, the, the last question I ask every guest, which is um, you've already shared a lot of wisdom that's going to help people that um, aspire to or want to advance in doing better and the difference only they can make and living their into their legacy. If there was just one final you know, lesson Maxim, aha, you know, what one final piece of advice or exercise, uh, inspirational quote, what have you, that you would want to share with someone who seeks to, again, begin or advance in flying higher in the difference only they can make, what would that be? What's coming up for me is that you are already enough, that there are certain things like privilege that would tell you that you are enough because you have privilege or you are enough because you have power. You are not enough because you have a certain identity. There are certain things about your Enneagram type even that will say, if, if I'm not strong enough, for example, or if I'm not this enough, if I'm not that enough, then I don't have value. But you are inherently valuable. You are inherently worthy of all good things. 
you were created perfect, whole, complete. And if you can embrace that, if you can embrace that outside of what white supremacy capitalism tells you you are, then you can live a truly, truly beautiful life. And that there's more for you in your enoughness that is already there. There is nothing that you have to prove ever. Yeah, I think that's it. Oh, that's beautiful. I really appreciate that. Want to thank everyone for tuning in. Jessica and I really appreciate you lending us some of your valuable time and attention. We hope today's broadcast motivates you to lean into an endeavor that matters with a little bit more curiosity and courage. You can learn more about Jessica Denise Dixon at jessicadixon.com. And of course, it's always great to see you at Creative on Purpose as well. Now, take the insight and inspiration from this conversation and fly a little bit higher in the difference only you can make. Jessica Dixon, thank you so much for lending us some of your time, wisdom, and experience here today. Thank you for having me.